0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about Paul and masculinity. And joining me to do that, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber?
1: Going well. Thanks, John.
0: And we have Dr. Logan Williams, who recently completed a PhD in New Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Logan? Hey, John. Thanks for having me. And we have a special guest. We have Grace Emmett, who is a PhD candidate in New Testament at King's College London, who recently submitted a thesis entitled Becoming a Man, Unmanly Slash Manly Self-Presentation in the Pauline Epistles. How's it going, Grace?
2: It's going well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this topic?
2: Yeah, sure. I think when I was putting together my proposals, this would have been 2015, I guess it felt like gender was definitely having more of a cultural moment than I had perhaps been aware of before. I'd always kind of loved Paul's letters and it felt kind of natural to stick there. He is obviously very popular talking about gender in various ways so it sort of felt like I wanted to do something that landed there and I realised quite quickly once I would started that masculinity was really this kind of new burgeoning area of research uh, and particularly in relation to Paul there just wasn't a huge amount Written that was exploring him and how he is gendered in his letters. And so that's sort of how my thesis came together.
1: Grace, can you tell us a little bit more about the content of your thesis and how you kind of structure it and the particular things that you talk about?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think I have sort of made a conscious effort to try and look at texts that are a bit understudied um, from the perspective of masculinity. Um, So, in some ways, the texts I look at are maybe um, not those you might naturally go to. And I also wanted to focus on texts that seemingly present Paul as quite unmanly on a sort of surface reading so that I could kind of dig into that and see whether, yeah, that surface reading is really helpful or if there's a bit more going on under the surface there. So I look at things like possible sort of disability discourses about his stigmata, circumcision, um, and also the way that he kind of self identifies as a slave in relation to Christ, but also to others. Uh, And the way that he uses maternal metaphors at various points in his letters and kind of what's going on with masculinity in all of those
3: different places. What are some of those maternal metaphors?
2: So in 1 Thessalonians 2, he talks about being a nursing mother. um, And that text is interesting because he also talks about, well, there's a textual variant, but I read it as uh, he's talking about himself as an infant. So there's a lot going on in the space of one birth. Then we've got Galatians 4.19, where he talks about being a mother and birthing the Galatians. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, he is slightly less explicit, but he's a nurse giving the Corinthians milk, who have not yet moved on to solid food. We've got this kind of range of nursing and birthing imagery going on. And he uses uh, sort of maternal imagery in other ways, like in Romans 8. But um, in terms of applying it to himself, there's the sort of three texts.
0: I'm guessing that in, in your research, you kind of do some juxtaposition with ancient conceptions of masculinity could you maybe say a little bit more about like how people in the ancient world conceived of or constructed masculinity
2: yeah definitely um yeah that's important for me i've got a whole sort of chapter on that so really trying to position paul in that broader cultural context so i guess it's sort of a basic framing we're talking about um a kind of juxtaposition between active and passive And you've got women sort of being construed along the sort of passive end of the binary. And to be an ideal man is to be this active penetrator, really, uh, that kind of comes into these concepts of what it is to be active. And that sort of manifests in lots of different ways. We can look at that sort of through social relationship, but also in terms of the sort of performance of virtues and kind of being self-controlled, exercising control over yourself, but also of others having good oratorical skills uh, so it sort of manifests in um, the way that the body itself is presented but also how that body is supposed to behave in terms of the virtues and qualities that it's meant to exhibit and all of these things we're kind of drawing from elite sources generally so there's a little bit of trying to fill in the gaps I guess in terms of wondering how broadly those ideals are worked with in ancient society um, but that's kind of where we're generally framing Paul.
3: What sort of cultural capital do you think is involved in the current debates over gender in Paul? Because it seems to be a really hot topic and people consider it really important. Uh, so obviously they think that there's some kind of relevance that that might have. So wh- what do you think is, is going on there uh, in the current play of scholarship?
2: I think, yeah, it's interesting with Paul in particular, because he is, has always been this quite divisive figure in terms of gender. And I think specifically in terms of masculinity, there's this trend towards trying to plot him at one end of a spectrum of sort of conformity to ancient gendered ideals and non-conformity and readings that are kind of on the conformity side it tend to have quite a kind of critical bent towards him that everything he does kind of assimilates with um, ideals of masculinity in the ancient world and there's not really much room for manoeuvre and you'll often find the kind of more unusual texts like the maternal metaphors just get kind of suspiciously left out of those analysis because it's like what what do we do with those passages? And then at the other end, I guess sometimes there is a kind of proto-feminism that comes out of these readings that see Paul as being non-conforming. So this desire to see Paul as being sort of distinct from um, or against culture and critiquing those ideals uh, in the ancient world that certainly to us feel kind of very uncomfortable and we want to challenge. And so it, it does seem to me that at both ends, there's maybe reasons that are driving those particular readings. And there's often not a huge amount going on in the middle it can sort of sit with that ambiguity or sort of trying to pull bits of Paul from both of those ends of the spectrum. So it does feel quite divided, I think, in scholarly readings of Paul at the moment.
3: A more specific question. For example, is it subversive of ancient conceptions of masculinity for Paul to talk about himself as a nursing mother?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And definitely some of the readings that take that view of Paul use the maternal metaphors to do that. Is it subversive? I, I don't think so. We do have other examples of male authors using sort of maternal imagery to describe things. I mean, it's not super common, particularly in a sort of first person identification. It's common to talk about milk as a kind of means of education. And so there's always a kind of implied nursing dynamic there that's quite a familiar trope. But there's not lots of first person identification. And, you know, for, for Paul to do that three times is quite unusual. Um, and I think there's that great book by uh, Beverly Roberts, who enters, it's kind of framed around this. And I, so I think it is worth dwelling on and pulling out. I think when we're wondering whether it's subversive, we have to kind of look at what it's doing in the context of the letter. So for it to be subversive, there'd have to be a real sort of rejection of, I guess, being a man and kind of, I, I don't know sort of completely embracing being feminine or I'm, I'm not sure exactly what we would the criteria for it being subversive in that context would be but certainly in the context of 1 Corinthians 3 that metaphor has got real kind of capital in terms of Paul sort of establishing his authority in that context and kind of chastising the Corinthians and so it's, it's being used for quite a specific purpose and I think it's interesting how I talk about how um, Paul's maternity sort of shifts between the different letters it's interesting that he's kind of at different phases of maternity with the different with the Thessalonians with the Corinthians with the Galatians and how that kind of maps onto where those churches seem to be in their relationship with Paul but I think when there's when the metaphor is doing something quite specific that makes me wary of thinking oh it's automatically subversive because he's using feminine imagery mm. so I, I do resist that but I also want to kind of embrace it and would love to see more talking about Paul as a nursing mother mm. um, there's this wonderful reflection from Anselm, which I use in the chapter where I talk about this, where he's got this kind of amazing prayer to Paul and refers to him as our greatest mother. And it's like, where do we hear that sort of Mm. in church and kind of Mm. more broadly? So I think it's interesting to sort of embrace the fullness of Paul that we have in terms of the imagery that he uses.
0: There's also that bit from the martyrdom of Paul. It's, It's, you know, one of these early church texts where when he's beheaded, there's mm. milk everywhere. Right. And that seems to be part of this, you know, St. Paul, or mother sort of motif, which is also an interesting example of what you're talking about. And I wonder if I could follow up on that idea. So so if I understand what you're saying, that like in the Thessalonian letters and in the Corinthian letters, when he used the nursing mother motif, it's like this is the stage in development. He's nursing them. But with like Galatians, for example, they're still in the gestation period. Right. It's like. Mm. Not even sure if they're properly being formed yet. I wonder if, because because as you said, there needs to be something else going on in the letter for it to be truly subversive. How in your thesis do you correlate what Paul says in Galatians 4, you know, that he's he's basically like the mother who is about to birth the Galatians, how you correlate that with the, the passage in, in chapter 3 where he says there's no male and female? Might that be an example of something subversive or how do you read that?
2: I read it as being subversive as such, or it has subversive potential. I think I, I get wary of getting too sort of close to seeing a sort of proto egalitarianism or proto feminism in Paul's letters, and I think I'm more interested in how we read them rather than needing to find that intrinsically in the letter itself. But certainly, I think there's there's amazing potential and richness in 328, and it's obviously something that is a very is important to our kind of conversations about gender. I don't see that as a sort of an erasure of male and female, a sort of eradication of that binary, um, but a sort of, yeah, a levelling of binaries and to say that there's nothing that prohibits you from being in Christ. So that's sort of where I would normally start with that text. And also, I think with reading Galatians 3.28 in a modern context, I've sort of drawn quite a lot of wisdom from reading um, David Horrell and Eco Theology, which is going to sound like a random aside, but will make sense. He's got this great book, which is written with Hunt and Christopher Southgate called Greening Paul. And he's he's there talking about how do we sort of read for environmental ethics when uh, this is not something that's kind of explicitly contained in scripture, and he's particularly focused on Paul's letters there. And he talks about the sort of different approaches that we have to scripture in this regard and how we can kind of have readings of recovery, so seeing the text as seeing something inherently positive that we need to recover, and perhaps has been sort of misread by later interpreters, or readings of resistance, which take a couple of different forms, but um, might be that we see the text being inherently bad and actually not having anything positive to say, which might lead us to question why we're even using scripture in the first place as a sort of, um, as being informative for ethics. And they sort of land on really needing to kind of have a bit of both. So this kind of give and take between those two. Um, obviously, we value scripture, otherwise, we wouldn't be looking to it for guidance. So we, we kind of want to say, yes, of course, there's something positive um, there for us and to be mined. I think we also give ourselves permission not to find um, or to feel like all of the answers are kind of always intrinsically ingrained and that we can kind of use our interpretation to sort of build on those and particularly in a modern context where we're perhaps asking questions of texts that are not being explicitly answered. So I think that is where that works obviously well in terms of eco-theology is also really helpful in terms of thinking about gender and perhaps this particular passage is sort of not feeling like we have to find all of the answers that we've ever wanted to know about gender contained in Galatians 3.28 but using it as a kind of means to help us do those readings and um, yeah being sensitive to things that we might need to resist but also feeling like there is good that we can recover and draw out from the text as well and so kind of operating between those two is going to be a useful lens for us in terms of thinking about scripture in this topic.
1: I really like that approach because that was awesome. You see so many people who take their preconceived ideas, whether they are strong complementarian ideas or strong feminist ideas, and then back into Paul from hmm. those positions uh, and sort of look to Paul to kind of legitimize whatever it is that they've already held on to. So what I'm curious to know is looking more at modern, the modern day Western church how do you see that playing out? In particular, what sort of narratives about masculinity do you think are at work in church circles at the moment?
2: So I think in terms of sort of gendered narratives, we quite often when we're talking about gender, we mean women's issues that kind of becomes synonymous for talking about women. So Paul and gender normally means Paul and women. And so, partly, it's good to just broaden that out and to realize that we, you know, men are gendered subjects as well, um, and to kind of incorporate that in our conversation. In terms of masculinity, I think it feels like there's a worry at the moment about the feminization of the church. Uh, Certainly, I've had conversations of telling people what my research is about and having that back in response. And I think people hoping that my thesis is somehow going to contribute to countering that problem. I don't know. (laughs) But I think we see that probably. I mean, you could pin this maybe since the sort of 60s. The sort of trend that's developed in American evangelicalism kind of cultivated this marketplace for books on what is biblical manhood, what is biblical womanhood. A lot of that seems to stem from sort of anxiety around masculinity and this worry about the feminization of the church, you know, whatever exactly that means. But to me, that's the kind of overarching thing that sort of seems to be happening at the moment. And it's maybe more pronounced in the States than I think it is here in the UK context, but definitely is going on here too. And yeah, as I said, I've definitely had that kind of in response in personal conversations of telling people what I'm working on.
1: What are the historical conditions that have been interpreted in different ways or made us feel like that's what's happening in the church? Is that really what's happening in the church that that's giving people the, the sense that it needs to be countered? like what, what's going on and what's giving rise to that sort of angst about making sure that the church does not become overly feminized and countering it with you know this strong sort of backlash of masculinity
2: I think there's a couple of things going on I mean on one level and this is kind of from my Anglican context but it's probably true across the board as well church churchgoers are more likely to be female than male so I think I think there's perhaps the perception that women are I mean I don't know about literally taking over the church but that there's a sense of kind of losing male members of church congregations and um, worry about why that's happening so I think that's part of it is literally just the demographic of churches Um, and yeah again that's speaking from an Anglican context but that might well play out across other denominations too and then I think other stuff that's going on is sort of tied to other things happening nationally I don't know if you guys are familiar with Kristen May's new book Jesus and John Wayne so she plots this kind of anxiety about feminization of the church sort of from the 60s in terms of the kind of sexual revolution and then through the sort of where we are now um, in terms of Trump and kind of what's led to widespread evangelical support for him and so I think at that level there's also been this response from the church to kind of things going on outside of its doors, but feeling like it needs to kind of bolster up a bit and kind of respond to some of that and reclaim. What's interesting, um, you know, John Piper and Wayne Grudem's book is literally recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, this sense that something's been lost that needs to be reclaimed.
3: Yeah, I mean, regarding the feminization language, it it is curious to me that, of course, that language doesn't go both ways, that the people who talk about feminization discourse aren't complaining that people might become too manly. Is there a there there? And do you think that the use of of Paul's letters plays into that at all?
2: Yeah, I think that isn't, I think the asymmetry is really interesting. And I mean, my hunch is that it's because of sort of misogyny that underpins it in a way that we see in broader culture. You know, there's a reason why calling somebody a sissy or, um, you know, variants of that, I'm trying not to use more explicit language. There's a particular reason why those are offensive because to be, for a man to be equated with being a woman is kind of one of the most offensive things you can sort of, say to a man in our culture I mean true in the ancient world and also today and it just that doesn't quite happen in reverse so if you were to sort of call me manly I I'm not sure that would have a huge amount of kind of offense carried with it or you know it might do but it's it's not the same in the way that our culture sort of values gender as we have in the way that you've defined it in terms of yeah to be sort of feminized is a real insult in a way that to be masculinized is not and obviously, it's fascinating because most of church leadership is is male, and so there's this disconnect as well between, you know, what level of church we're we talking about being feminized, um, because actually a lot of the leadership structures are still male. So there's not this obvious kind of, I don't know, sort of takeover of women uh, that seems to be sort of being feared at one level. I think the way that this can connect with Paul's letters is the sort of historical interpretation. I mean, not just of Paul, but a biblical text generally. That's, that's been the preserve of men. Biblical interpretations have been the preserve of men. And it's only recently that women have had kind of more of a voice in biblical interpretation. And, you know, with Paul, we've got these particular thorny texts that relate to women and, and kind of their behavior in church. And so for a long time, interpreting those has been controlled by men without women's voices really kind of being allowed to push back on that or to offer different perspectives. And so I think that's another way in which we've seen that asymmetry um, is just through the sort of history of interpretation. And obviously, you know, that's changed a lot in the last sort of 30 or 40 years in particular, but we're still dealing with that kind of weight of interpretation and the impact that has on church practices and so on. And I think that's going to be an ongoing dialogue for, for quite a while, really.
3: So people, you know, often appeal to First Corinthians 16, 13, act like men, which is the word andrezo, which uh, comes from the same root as for man. And people use this as a way to construct ideas of masculinity. Um, And I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think about that? Can we, can and should we take ideas of masculinity from Paul?
2: Yeah, that verse is such a good example. Um, And sometimes when I've talked about this in a church context, I talk about how you know, gender in some ways is obvious in text, where, like the passages we've kind of alluded to, um, where Paul's talking about women's behaviour also, and that's kind of where we immediately go when we think about gender. And then we've also got examples where gender's sort of hidden um, below the surface. And this is a good example because a lot of English translations will have that as be courageous. And so, yeah, if you don't know kind of what's going on in the Greek behind that, there's nothing to tell you that there's gendered language at play there. Um, So I quite like to translate it as man up because, that's something we talk about um that's kind of a phrase in broader culture so for me that's quite a good sort of modern equivalent for that idiom yeah so i think that's fascinating and uh, there's questions about is he talking to the entire corinthian congregation at that point is he just talking to the men um if he is talking to the women what does that mean for them to man up and sort of act like men and you talked about how um yeah, is this kind of a mandate for finding a particular masculinity in the letters? And we've also talked about, you know, where is or is there subversion at play in the four-line epistles? And I think you could have quite a subversive reading of that in terms of if you if you do take that verse to be applying to the Corinthian women as well, which I think it does. I don't think there's any reason why it wouldn't at that point. You know, what does what do kind of female masculinities look like in that context? Is that 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 to me is actually kind of opening up masculinity in a way which is perhaps not available. Um, more traditionally in ancient culture. So I think there's ways of reading that that are actually quite interesting and kind of resisting this grain of saying, you know, we, we can only find or just finding a masculinity just for men. And this is really kind of significant in Paul's letters. I think there's ways of reading that sort of more creatively, uh, which sort of would trouble that a bit.
0: So on the topic of translation and kind of masculine language, when Paul uses, for example, adafoi, like brothers, as it tends to be translated in some translations, brothers and sisters or siblings and in some others, do you see that as Paul identifying men in the congregations or is that a term for the entirety of the congregation? And similarly, when Paul Uses huios and refers to the believers who receive the Spirit are, are sons of God. Do you think retaining that language, even that masculine language, uh, is important, or do you, do you prefer something more gender neutral, like children? You sometimes see in translations.
2: That's a really good question. I think generally um, when we're talking about brothers, I, I, I tend to think brothers and sisters is more helpful there, particularly when we've got explicit, explicit references to women. So we know they are part of the congregation, too. And, it's you know, we do this in modern language, too. We kind of use the designation guys to refer to a mixed gender group. So I can sort of see why that can be uncomfortable. But I, I think that's just a natural sort of fact of language then. And also now we still kind of do that. And so translating as brothers and sisters is a kind of useful way of making that more inclusive and I think makes sense. I think, yeah, sons is interesting because there's obviously particular sort of connotations of sonship and kind of what that means in the ancient context that can get lost if we translate as children. So I'm probably more inclined to keep that as is. So I definitely don't have a sort of everything has to be gender neutral. I think it's much more interesting to have conversations about yeah. Okay. Why? Why is it sons explicitly there, and we can kind of unpack that a bit and think about what the ramifications of that are, and how is it that um, women become sons too? And we kind of what does that mean? That kind of is getting into sort of strange territory. So I think rather than having a sort of broad brush approach of making everything gender neutral, I think we can sit with the fact that these texts come from a culture that's different to ours. But actually, we're wrestling with some of the same issues in terms of language, and having a conversation around that is going to be more fruitful than. Um, I guess trying to sort of smooth things over in translation all of the time.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I typically personally like it when they translate it as brothers and sisters because it's inclusive of both genders. And it conveys this message that our genders are good things and they're not these things that are just inherently at war with each other. But they are things that truly complement one another and have a lot of similarities in complementary ways without being collapsed into just kind of a a gender neutral thing. So like, for example, in first Corinthians, when Paul says be like men, and you know, that concept of being courageous, and I just think about all these examples of women throughout the Bible, as extraordinarily courageous. I mean, that's like, defining characteristics of these godly women, Old Testament and New Testament, who feared God above fearing man, and were incredibly courageous in that regard. And so I like what you're saying about being inclusive of both of the genders, recognizing that this isn't just like masculinity is this sort of counter blow to an overemphasis of the feminine, right? Like even that assumption and dynamic is kind of an economy of war between the genders, as opposed to imagining sort of this economy of the kingdom with the genders by which we kind of exist in this state of mutuality. So I, I, I'll have to say, I, I appreciate this kind of more inclusivist approach as opposed to kind of the neutrality uh, or the insistence of like, no, Paul's a feminist or no, Paul's actually a chauvinist that we commonly see.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's where there's space to talk back to the tech sometimes. So, yeah, if we come back to that at by men example, I mean. But I think Be Courageous is a good modern English translation uh, because we need to have this conversation around the text for that to make sense otherwise. And yeah, of course, now we can say, yeah, hang on, women are courageous too. This is not a kind of exclusive masculine virtue. And so it's really important to have that dialogue back with the text and the context that it's come out of.
0: In former church contexts that I've been involved in, whenever there's a kind of like male-centric event, you know, like a, a men's night it's always so ridiculously stereotypical. Thankfully at the church where I'm at now, there's a lot of women in leadership and that just doesn't fly, which I'm grateful for. But I've been in some previous church contexts where it's just silly. I mean, it doesn't appeal to me. Like that's the, that's the thing. It's like, I'm a dude at this church and we're having a men's night, but all the stuff y'all want to do is like, nothing that I'm interested in but it's quote-unquote manly you know it's like why can't the dudes get together and read poetry like what's wrong with that
2: I think that's such a good point and this is one of the ways that the church kind of participates in reinscribing gender stereotypes yeah I can think of being in churches and it's always like a men's curry night and it's like, well, you know, women like curry too and that's okay. <laughs> that doesn't challenge anyone's masculinity. Or the women's stuff is like a kind of really fluffy, um, well, we're going to paint our nails and like get cozy and watch a rom-com. It's like, great, but also we don't have to like only put things in those two boxes. And sometimes I wonder if we've got a really kind of heavy emphasis on doing lots of gendered groups, kind of what, what purpose are they actually serving and kind of splitting always into men and women and if we're packaging up them up in quite gender ways sort of what what's the purpose of that and it's interesting how for some denominations that's kind of I guess sort of part and parcel of the way things are structured and other denominations it wouldn't it doesn't even occur to sort of have men's groups and women's groups in quite the same way. It's certainly not themed, I guess, like we're going on this wilderness retreat or whatever it is. So we definitely see that more pronounced in some contexts than others. And I think it's good to unpick those discourses that we see in wider society when actually the church has got a chance to, to do something a bit different and to kind of have a voice in challenging some of those stereotypes that aren't helpful.
1: I'm really curious too about not just events, but also resources that are highly gendered. So for example. You know, I can identify a, a women's Bible because it's going to have lots of colors and flowers and calligraphy on it. <laughs> I can identify a woman's Bible study because it's probably got Chevron on the cover and gold letters. <laughs> um, walking into a Christian bookstore, for example, you see this really on full display. Like the sections that really stand out are the sections for children and the sections for women, because those are the sections that have all the bright colors and illustrations. <laughs> and then everything else is just sort of the neutral zone, which is presumably the books for men, right? And that's where all the, the serious theology books sort of come from. And um, I've uh, seeing sort of that silo effect with the genders has has always been a bit perplexing to me, particularly as someone who naturally gravitated to more of those heavy hitter theology textbooks, as opposed to the ones that I was supposed to be looking at. And I've seen a lot of people recently stand up and say, Hey, women, you can read those books too. Like you don't, you know, it doesn't need to be on Chevron stationery for you to understand it. (laughs) Like you can read those as well. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you can read the men's books, but as far as female contribution, That's not really, that's only within this sort of female department, (laughs) I guess. So anyway, I'm curious to know if you've thought about even the way that we do publishing and the, the types of books that we have on the market and how we're reaching different groups and how we group different people on the basis of the types of products that we create. Do you have any insights that would be helpful for us?
2: That I mean, it's definitely something I can relate to. I can think about being at sort of Christian Weeks Away and yeah, having that moment of going into the bookstore and then just being like, oh. (laughs) And I I think, particularly, seeing genres of like Christian romantic literature, and it's like this is all aimed at women and it tells a very kind of familiar and worrying sort of storyline. There's no equivalent sort of like men's fiction and kind of going into sort of romantic narratives there. So it's funny how christian culture can often sort of parody or sort of repeat i guess what's going on in broader context and often just in much worse and like more cliched ways so it can definitely relate to that i think something that's helpful to think about with gender is not just on the level of sort of individuals so um yeah how are we making individuals feel included at church or um or wherever but how is gender sort of coded into spaces as well and I think that is such a great example because setting literature up in that way and I guess obviously publishing literature in that way to start with directs women and men to sort of even specific spaces within a bookshop and so there's ways that gender operates at different levels um, and becomes kind of intrinsic to things sort of beyond just individual relationships Um, and I think yeah there's a real opportunity here for the church to kind of do something a bit more interesting and to sort of interrogate the ways that gender has become coded into sort of practices and the way that things are structured that are just, be, you know, beyond sort of individual human relationships. But this is a kind of a structural thing as well. And, and the bookshop example is a great way that that is manifest.
0: Going along this line of thought a bit further, uh, what about conferences like uh, the Promise Keepers?
2: Yeah, so the Promise Keepers are a sort of men's movement that arose in the 90s. I think it was the 90s. And this is kind of part of that bigger conversation we're having about, um, I guess, the church responding to this fear about the feminization of the church and this desire, I guess, to name what Christian masculinity is, for that to be kind of almost a marketable good. Promise Keepers were a group that were kind of part of that and had a lot of very popular conferences for that sort of decade organised around what is masculinity in a Christian context, which had a sort of, I guess, like soft patriarchalism is sort of what we would call it. Because it emphasises, I guess, servant leadership, but is also kind of strongly complementarianism. So it's got kind of dynamics that would be certainly jar with kind of wider culture, but also um, other things that we might kind of name as being more misogynistic. And as far as I can tell, it sort of went quiet for a long time and then seems to have had a bit of a comeback last year. Got a new chairman who wrote a book, which I went and got out of the library and was quite embarrassed. <laughs> to get on loan but sat reading that last summer and it starts with the, a quotation from first Corinthians 9 24 to 27 where Paul's using this kind of athletic imagery and he, he's talking about kind of running the race and the prize is on offer and at the end talks about beating his own body and enslaving it and it's um then there's this lengthy sort of exposition afterwards about kind of this very manly athlete who's being kind of oiled up and Sort of trying to set the historical context, and I guess reading Paul as the athlete into that sort of manly athletic context, and uh, so that was quite fun for me that it starts with that text because I'm always on the lookout for Paul being used in these ways. So I don't, I don't know whether the promise keepers will kind of reach their heyday like they did in the 90s again, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. And clearly, that's kind of gaining momentum again, and I'm curious to see kind of what happens off the back of that book as a result, and whether that starts to pick up as a movement we've certainly got other men's movements in Christian circles. Uh, but that one was really sort of prolific for time and seems to have kind of tailed off.
1: Grace, what about CBMW and do you interact with Amy Bird's new book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood?
2: I haven't had a chance to read her book yet, but I'm really excited about it. And I, I know it's kind of been following stuff on Twitter. It seems like it's been causing a bit of a stir. But yeah, I think it's really good that it's out there and there's just some pushback. Because um, if you read... Well, I can't claim to have read all of Recovering Biblical Manhood or Womanhood because there are other things I would rather do with my time. But there is there's so much, um, there's a really weird relationship with culture, I think, that exists in that volume in terms of culture on the one hand is this sort of God-given, abstract force that dictates what is masculine and feminine. But on the other hand, that is clearly not comfortable in some contexts. And anything which is sort of seen as being encouraging men to be effeminate should just sort of definitely be resisted or anything that's kind of challenging complementarianism that should be resisted. So there's this weird sort of yeah, relationship with culture where sometimes it seemed to be sort of this abstract force that shouldn't be challenged. And at other times, absolutely should be resisted and the church should be very much against culture. And so I think Amy Bird's book is really important for pushing back on some of that stuff and just the really ridiculous ways that that can drill down in recovering biblical manhood there's this kind of i remember this passage but i quote in my conclusion where it's talking about you know in what thinking about the cultural context you're in who is it that should open the door and um are you going to cause a man to lose his masculinity if you act in a different way against those kind of cultural conventions i just think what a sad state of existence to be in to worry about losing masculinity because someone has opened the door in a different convention i I mean it's just absurd And, and so i think her if i've understood the sort of premise of her um, without having read it. I think she's kind of pushing back on a lot of that stuff, which is just sort of ridiculous, really.
0: How self-defeating is this <laughs> masculine logic? Because what you have is this very unmasculine insecurity about masculinity.
3: It reminds me of that Desiring God article by, by John Piper, where he says women can't be police officers because it's going to threaten a, man, uh, a man, man's masculinity. If you have a woman bossing around a man, so even though it's not, you know, directly prohibited in scripture, he thinks that the, you know, the natural, the natural order of things, so to speak, means that it's, uh, it's ethically prohibited for a woman to be a police officer.
1: A lot of times, um, people appeal to natural law, quote unquote, when they're looking at these gender conversations, or they try to bring natural law into the gender conversations. But what, what's really funny is, especially with A notion of masculinity like that, that as you said is super fragile, but I would say very brittle too, it can be broken easily. It can be shattered easily, which suggests that probably what you're proposing as normative is not actually natural law. It's something that you've created, it's a construct. Um, And for that reason, it can be broken so quickly. You know, a man gets stopped by a female cop, or if a man doesn't open the door, a woman opens the door, or something like that. And so a lot of times I think what people do in these sorts of conversations is they take norms that are largely created by culture or whatever, and then they kind of brute force impose them on the world. And a lot of times they don't even stick very well on the world, but we just kind of enforce them and we make sure that they stick because you know, if we don't, then the world's going to fall into chaos and we're going to become feminists, and then everything will just be terrible. (laughs) Right. And so we're just, we're white knuckle gripping onto these norms to make sure that they stick. That's fine. If you want to do that, philosophers would say that's more of like a Kantian way of viewing ethics, not actual natural law. They need to be careful to, If they're going to appeal to natural law to do that because it's actually an improper use of it, but it should cause us to question like, man, if you have to just brute enforce these things out of fear that it's going to break and then everything's going to be just so destructive. Like, I think what Amy Bird is trying to do is say, there's something a lot deeper that we're missing here in the entire conversation about gender and what it means to be gendered and how the genders relate that we're missing. And because of that, we're losing what could be a very vivid, vibrant vision of this in favor of sort of this like grid that we're just kind of imposing on the world.
3: My question about the culture thing, well, actually more of a comment, uh, but it is, it is curious to me that when people say God has given this culture to teach us blah, 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 blah. And I think I've heard Greg Morse say this like 15 times, um, is that, you know, how people define culture is quite selective. And this happens a lot in discourse, right? Like, you see conservative Christians being like, the culture is feministic. And then you see like more progressive Christians being like, the culture is toxic masculinity, right? So people just use culture to define, you know, what, whatever they don't believe is culture. Um, and then that gives them a warrant to be countercultural, right? So people define culture selectively. But even in these discussions, like if, if God has given us culture and then, you know, to teach us what male and female are, but, you know, culture is actually very different. Like there's no monolithic culture. There's no, cultural idea of masculinity you know you you might have like major dominant trends but like general western culture is quite diverse uh and you know what you choose and select to be normative is is probably what you already believe to be masculine right (laughs) so people say god has given us culture and culture has taught us like males need to be strong and competent and leaders and of course none of those things are bad but also of course Many other people in culture would have different definitions of of masculinity, but people just pick and choose what they think is is uh, significant from culture and then and then claim it as normative. I'm just wondering what you think Paul actually can teach us about gender. Um, What can we take from him constructively? So instead of taking act like men as Uh, normative in the kind of straightforward sense of we we use our or Paul's definition or what we perceive as Paul's definition of masculinity and then we just repersonate for men if we're if we're not doing that and if we're identifying certain problems in that what are some ways that Paul can actually teach us about gender and about gender expression
2: I think that's so important because yeah there's a risk of this just becoming a completely sort of deconstructed conversation and if the bible is a kind of valued resource for us we actually want to sort of say something productive with it too um not just be kind of pulling things apart and that's part of the reason why i called titled my thesis becoming a man because um, i pick up on a phrase that he uses in first um, corinthians 13 11 where he talks about having become a man and put away childish things and looking at these kind of different kind of portraits of paul in his letters and seeing those as sort of modes of becoming he sort of becomes a man um through these different self modes of self presentation. So. Yeah I think in terms of thinking for us Paul for me is fascinating because there is just such breadth in the way that he presents himself and you know I concentrate on these four what to me are quite kind of curious texts from a gender perspective Um, but obviously they can kind of be put into conversation with um, more typical treatments of Paul and gender. What I find to be significant is really trying to resist that selectivity of trying to kind of shoehorn Paul into kind of one box or another because I think actually there is a kind of a lot of variety in in his letters Um, not just in the way that he's being prescriptive but actually just in terms of how he describes himself and how that can be read through a gendered lens so I think the lesson for us is the challenge is I guess to think about how can we be a bit more expansive in our own use of gender Um, we've talked a lot about gendered stereotypes in the church and the way that it can kind of um, I guess appropriate things often from the culture it's it's in and then find ways of manifesting that in specifically christian context with you know men's retreats or whatever it is and actually i think if we're saying that there's much more diversity in scripture and you know i would i would really resist the idea of talking about a biblical masculinity sort of full stop because i think the question for me then is like well which one this you know which kind of which person are we talking about and uh which sort of context that we catching that person in um to kind of keep coming back to Paul. I think you can paint quite different portraits of Paul depending on how selective you are with the text. So I think for the church there's a space to be a bit more creative and to um yeah to try and resist some of the sort of stereotypes which are which are not helpful. So obviously to sort of encourage people, to encourage men to sort of be leaders is not a bad thing in and of itself. But to think about how we're how we're talking about gender in a way which can end up being exclusive. So if that's done in a manner which presumes that women also should not be leaders, then I think that's where we're creating problems or kind of, um, yeah, repeating problems. So I think the challenge to us is to, to seeing the diversity that is actually in biblical text, trying to resist these treatments which um, are very focused on particular texts and think about why they might be excluding others. The maternal metaphors is always a favourite one for me, sort of in that regard for Paul. And to use that as, uh, as a sort of challenge to ourselves, I guess, think about other ways that we're being selective and um, trying to kind of pigeonhole people in a manner which actually is not kind of conducive to our common human flourishing.
3: I'm pretty skeptical of uh, a lot of the moves I see in, um, especially American, amongst American Christians, where they try to present a monothetic definition of masculinity, right? So they assume that because masculinity is an idea, because gender is a concept, uh, obviously in in scripture, and we have that concept, that therefore, uh, in order to be true, uh, to our uh, gender. We have to define the precise characteristics, essential characteristics of masculinity or femininity, and then live that out. And I, th- I think the mistake there is elision being made between language and normativity, um, and the assumption that for some reason, because we have the idea, we then need to have a monothetic definition which then is normative for us. And, and words are polythetic anyways. So I, d- I don't see why having the concept in itself you know, requires this kind of hyper-focused definition that then becomes normative for us. I just, I just don't think that language and our inherited concepts and even concepts that are in scripture, I don't think that's uh, how we need to treat them. And I, and I don't think that's how you know ethics works. It, it's how, it's how Aristotle works uh, a lot in his Nicomachean Ethics, but I don't think that is normative either.
1: I, I'm thinking of these very concise definitions, sort of what Logan was alluding to earlier, of what you know biblical masculinity or biblical femininity is. Like you were saying, they typically tend to pigeonhole people because the point of a definition is to be very specific <laughs> and clear. And when you're dealing with humans and you're dealing with something like gender, there's just an excess there. That doesn't mean that it's something that's purely fluid or something that, you know, it doesn't mean any of those, but it does mean that it's probably not something that you can define like you're going to define a rank of species. You know, this isn't a a taxonomy, if you will, that we can just kind of whittle down to a very clear-cut definition of what either of these mean. So I, I'm interested in your work because I think you're putting work in different places. You're not putting forth effort in trying to whittle down to get to the essential core of what masculinity or femininity is, but instead you're helping us to imagine what the ways that gender is expressed in scripture and the ways particularly that both men and women are transformed into the image of Christ, you know, as men and women too.
2: I think there's an exciting opportunity for the church to sort of, we've been talking about thinking more creatively about gender and um, maybe having a slightly more expansive use of text and not kind of being too selective in how we define gender. And I think there's a sort of social um, moral calling that the church can have within this. Masculinity is being kind of more widely debated in society, not just within church walls. And that's got kind of real life consequences as well. Um, If we think about the sort of detrimental impacts that masculinity can have when that's a a sort of toxic or harmful construction, the church can be a partner in challenging that and calling for gender equality. So we've seen that already. Um, You know, we had the Me Too movement, which was obviously hugely powerful and had that kind of global reach. And then as part of that, there was this Church Too dynamic, which was naming abusive structures that happening in churches and where we have these configurations of toxic masculinity and i think that was really powerful to sort of see this collective action in sort of challenging that and i think we the church can sort of partner in other ways to thinking about the fact that male suicide is sort of a hugely problem a sort of huge problem why is it that 75 percent of suicides in the uk are male what is it about constructions of masculinity that make it difficult for men to reach out for help or um you know whatever it is that's kind of leading to that
3: It's interesting that you cite that statistic because I actually see people appeal to male suicide rates as the reason why we need more emphasis on conceptions of masculinity. Um, So do you actually think that, you know, ironically, not idealizing masculinity in this kind of singular way can actually be freeing for people?
2: Yeah, I think that hits it on the head, actually. It's when it becomes idealized that's when it becomes fragile because it's this pursuit of something which you can never be quite sure of if you've got it and that's why masculinity seems to be so much more fragile than femininity we've talked a lot about anxiety around masculinity and kind of what is underpinning that and I think that's where there's positive potential in this um, because gender doesn't need to be something that is harmful and has that kind of impact an extreme and I think it would be really exciting for the church to Sort of take on a moral, moral imperative in um, bringing about a more positive vision
1: of masculinity and gender generally.
0: Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Grace. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, Grace, thank you so much. You've given us so much to think about and we just appreciate your perspective that you're bringing to the table and I'm very excited about your work and to see how it will be useful both um, to the academy and a blessing to the
3: church. Yeah, thanks so much, Grace.
0: If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.